we're going to get to the good news today about the strong man. And it might surprise you. We're going to talk about plunder. Do you know the word plunder actually appears in the Bible, matey? <laughs> uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, but where to begin? Where to begin with our message on the strong man today? We had a wonderful message of sacrifice last Sabbath from our pastor, right? Easter and Passover, what a wonderful opportunity for us to share the good news about God's love for us. And it's his love, right? He is love and everything that he thinks and says and does is motivated by love. What a beautiful thing for us to contemplate. Today, as we think about the resurrection, I love all the R words that we can associate with the gospel and God's sacrifice for us. Restoration, repentance, revival, reunion, uh, reconciliation. We're gonna talk about reconciliation today. Does the Bible talk about God being reconciled to us or about us being reconciled to God? Some interesting thoughts we can find there uh, about that as well. Um, but when it comes to the strong man, there's a verse, and I'd like to invite you to go to your Bibles now. We'll be spending a lot of time in Romans, I think, but let's go to Isaiah 48. Isaiah chapter 48. This is a beautiful chapter here. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of 49. Mm -hmm. This is a beautiful chapter here about how God, our creator, knows us from the moment we've been created. You know, there's only ever gonna be only one of you and me, right? Um, and he takes a special interest in you and me from that very early time. But there's a prayer here at the end of the chapter that I think a few people probably prayed for me as a young man who was uh, known as a rascal when I was younger. But it's one that is near and dear to my heart as I remember my children and all of God's children here. If you go to the end of chapter 49 here, and in the context of the strong man, we read verse 24 and 25, it says, shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the lawful captive delivered? But thus saith the Lord, these are his words, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered for I will contend with him that contends with thee and I will save your children. Mm. What a great promise, huh? We can claim that because God has promised it. We talked about the covenant. We learned about the covenant and God's promises uh, to us in all of this. Um, so who is a strong man and what does it mean for you and me? Let's go back to Luke chapter 11. Take a look. This is mentioned in three of the gospels. We're going to go to Luke chapter 11. <laughs> and pick it up here. Luke chapter 11. It's kind of nice to turn pages once in a while as opposed to just scrolling through my, uh, my handhelds here. Hmm. 
Okay. Beginning in verse 17. Jesus is ministering here and doing miracles. Oh, that's me, isn't it? And thank you to our audio video team for the great job that you do. Higher? Okay, thank you. Is that any better, Josh? What do you think? Is that good? Okay, thank you. Um, some of you may know this, but I was born deaf, completely deaf in this year, and yet for 20 years I was in charge of the house sound up at the college church, <laughs> up in South Lancaster. So you, you guys have a special place in my heart for the great job that you do putting us online and with all the sound here. Thank you. Um, Jesus is doing some miracles here, miracles of healing as well as preaching and teaching. How do you and I define a miracle? And today, especially in the context, the miracle of a resurrected life. Can the resurrection of Jesus Christ have meaningful blessings for you and me here and now today? We're going to dive into that a little further. But Jesus is ministering doing this, and the leaders of the people in Israel are, choosing, are accusing him. Who is the accuser of the brethren? Let's be careful when we start pointing fingers and accusing other people with that spirit. They're accusing him of doing all this by the power of Beelzebub, or the devil, or Satan. And so Jesus is going to try and set them straight here with a lesson. And beginning in verse 17, we read, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Does Satan have a, a kingdom? By virtue of what our parents did in the Garden of Eden, he, is, he was now the usurper, the, the prince of this world. We see that uh, explained to us in the book of Job, where God calls his government together, convenes the council, and Satan shows up as the representative of our world. Praise the Lord that Jesus has spoiled that kingdom and won that back, hasn't he? If I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. I love that. No doubt, friends. No doubt. Let's believe. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are at peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, who is the overcomer? Jesus Christ. Who is the strong man? Satan. Overcomes him and takes from him all of his armor, all of the armor that he trusted in for his protection, for his offense and his defense. Does Satan have any power left, friends? All power in heaven and earth is given to Jesus Christ. Takes from him his armor wherein he trusted and divides his spoils. He that is with me that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. You and I, friends, are invited to join with Jesus in going into the strong man's house here in this world and taking his plunder, taking his spoils. What are this plunder, and what is the spoil? It's people. It's his children who he has lived and died for. As the captain of the army, he invites us, I'll say he commands us to go and participate in this wonderful, this wonderful ministry. And I will say bringing that resurrection power 
to other people. I told you I was born deaf. But I came across a story of a young lady named Annie this week. This is a true story. And I'll give you all the reference material so that you can look it up. She lived in the 1800s. And she was born to parents who had escaped the famine in Ireland. They came here to the promised land to start a new life. And she and her little brother Jimmy, mom and dad, lived out in western Massachusetts. One day, her mother took ill and died when she was just a little girl. And Annie ended up, her father, bless his heart, didn't have it in him to raise the children. And so Annie and her little brother Jimmy ended up at the Tewksbury Institute. Anybody ever been to Tewksbury? It's up on the New Hampshire border here in Massachusetts. It was a, uh, an almshouse, a poor house, back in the 1800s. Housed somewhere between 900 and 1,000 men, women, and children there at a time. A lot of suffering, a lot of broken families, broken individuals there. And little Annie found herself down in the cellar in a cage, literally in a cage. So years later, a doctor named Frank Mayfield shows up at the Tewksbury Institute, learning about everything that's going on there. And as he's walking out the door, he absentmindedly bumps into an elderly floor maid. While they're pick, gathering up their things, he tries to make conversation. He says, how long have you worked here? She replied, I've worked here almost since the place opened. It opened in the 1850s. He says, what can you tell me about the history of this place? And this elderly floor maid says, well, I don't know what I can tell you, but I can show you. With that, she leads him downstairs into the, the cellar of the oldest building on the property. She points out one of the, the locked small rooms there, opens the door, and there's a little, what appears to be prison cell in it. Bars rested over with age, and she says, that's the cage where they used to keep Annie Sullivan. Anybody recognize the name? Really? Who's Annie? Asked the doctor, Frank Mayfield. Well, the elderly maid says, she was a young girl who was brought in here because she was incorrigible. Nobody could do anything with her. What they didn't know is that she had contracted some bacteria, there's a name for it, as a youngster, and because her eyes were constantly inflamed, she had lost a lot of her vision. And now the rest of her senses became acutely aware. This was how she interacted with her dark world now. She'd bite and scream and throw her food at people. The doctors and nurses couldn't examine her or do anything with her, even though I'd seen them trying. I was only a few years younger than her myself, and I, this elderly matron is telling this story, so she's probably seven or eight years old at the time. I didn't know what to do, so I thought I'd just make her some brownies. So she bakes her some brownies, brings them to her the next day. I walked carefully to her cage and said, Annie, 
I baked these brownies just for you. I'm going to put them right here on the floor. You can come and get them if you want. And then I ran out as fast as I could because I was afraid she might come after me. But she didn't. She actually took the brownies and ate them. After that, she was just a little bit nicer to me when I was around. And sometimes I'd talk to her. And once I even got her laughing. Now, one of the nurses noticed this was going on. She told the doctor. And they asked me if I'd help them with Annie. And I said I would. This is a little girl now, right? I said I would if I could. So that's how it came to be that every time they wanted to see Annie or examine her, I went into the cage. She went into Annie's experience. Jesus has come into our experience, into the, this cage of a world, right? Enslaved by sin and in bondage to death. She would go into the cage and hold her hand and calm her down and explain what was going on. And this is how we all discovered that Annie was almost blind. They worked with her about for about a year. And then the Perkins Institute opened up. Anybody remember the Perkins Institute? There's a young lady my wife and I befriended back in the 1980s named Beth White. Beautiful, beautiful Christian woman, blind, as a result of some complications of birth, I think. She ended up singing, performed wonderful pianist and singer at our wedding. And that's how we became familiar with the Perkins Institute and, and what goes on there. So Annie caught wind of this, all right? She's blind, but people talk. And she heard that some people from the Perkins Institute for the Blind were coming to the Tewksbury Institute or the Tewksbury House. She followed them around the whole day, waiting for an opportunity to speak. And just as they were leaving, she spoke up, saying she would like to go to the Perkins. And don't you know, they, they agreed and they took her. At the Perkins Institute, this young lady, in working with people who knew how to work with blind folks, shined. She went to school, got a great education, was the valedictorian of their graduating class, and went on to become a teacher. Years later, the headmaster at the Perkins, and years later after she would go back to the Tewksbury Institute to see how she could help, uh, the headmaster at the Perkins Institute got a letter from Alabama from a father who was just at his wit's end. His daughter was blind. He had no way. He had reached his wit's end and had, didn't know how to continue to love his daughter and help her grow up. And he didn't want to put her in an asylum. So from Alabama, he wrote a letter up here to the Perkins Institute asking for help for his daughter. And the headmaster remembered this young lady who had graduated valedictorian from the Perkins Institute. And he said, Annie, how'd you like to go to Alabama? Help a young girl out. OK. Annie sort of recognized this was maybe her calling. And you know who the young lady was that she met in Alabama? Helen Keller. This little girl who had spent several years in a cage, misunderstood by everybody, by the grace of God, got an education, and we're going to be a lifelong companion for Helen Keller. And when Helen Keller received the Nobel Prize, she was asked, who has had the greatest impact on your life? She immediately said, Annie Sullivan. And they said, is that true, Annie? And Annie said, well, perhaps. But I, I think there might be someone else. 
that little handmaid back at the Tewksbury Institute who baked you those brownies. And it led to a resurrection of a life. Wow. How about you and me? Who can you and I show some kind of little kindness? You know hospitality is my thing, right? Show some kind of hospitality to that might change the world forever. How about that? God's resurrection power in the form of a brownie of a little girl who took a chance on someone that was completely misunderstood. I've been fortunate that some people have taken chances on me. I was not completely misunderstood. I was going over Fool's Hill repeatedly, uh, taking pe people, with, anyone that would go with me, with me. Um, but by the grace of God, had, had those little serendipities in life, people cross the path of your life. You wake up in the morning, you have no idea what's going to happen to you. Do you ever think about who's going to cross the path of my life today? And how can I be a blessing to them? Amazing. Amazing to think who crosses the path of your life. Um, I could tell you stories about my, my kid brother. Talk about a resurrected life. We think of the woman at the well in John 4. Right? She comes to the well at noontime in the middle of the day when nobody else is there. Why is that? You hear about people congregating around the bubbler in the old days before the pandemic, right? Fellowship, friendship, sharing. This woman comes in the, the heat of the day all by herself. Um, the, I'm going to get to my point in just a second, but that children's story was wonderful. My daddy was a pilot. <laughs> he was a squadron commander over here at Otis Air Force Base before he shipped out to Vietnam and, and flew out of Da Nang and, by God's grace, made it home safely. I have a male cousin, Chip Sassoni, who flew over in uh, Iraq in Afghanistan. And I have a kid brother. Here's the point of my story. I come from four generations in the military who served over in the... It wasn't the first Gulf War, Desert Storm, and then there was the Gulf War. I forget which one it was. It was the second one. Well, my kid brother got out of West Point, and he's commanding a bunch of guys marching in tanks across the desert. Some of you have heard this story. And as they would get to different towns and villages, they would try to do what they could to help the people that they came across. And so oftentimes, they would dig a well. And they would bring equipment in to pump water for the people, figuring if they didn't have to spend all day just getting water, maybe they could do things like educate their children and make their lives a little bit better. Well, don't you know that they would come back you know, a week or so later and the wells would all be blown up? They said, wow, what is going on? Why are people destroying these, these wells of water? There's a spiritual illustration too here, right, about God's water of life springing up for us. Turns out when they brought some women in that could finally communicate with the women in the village, they couldn't talk to the, the men, my brother and the rest of his men couldn't talk to them, the men wouldn't let them they found out it wasn't the guys that were destroying the wells, it was the women. Why would those women destroy those wells of water? It's because that time that they spent, and it took a lot of time in some cases, going to get the water was sacred time for them. It was the only time they got to spend with each other, just the women together, out from under the shadow of the men. They had the freedom to be themselves, to share some pleasantries, their joys, their secrets, their hopes. And so they would just destroy these wells so they could get that sacred time back. Can you imagine that? Wow. And here comes this woman 
at noonday to the well to meet Jesus because no one else is there. What a beautiful thing transpires, right? The day slowly dawns on her. This guy isn't just a Jew. There isn't just a guy, but he's a Jew. Dawns a little more. She perceives that he's a prophet in the course of their discussion. And Jesus is so patient, letting her lead the conversation where, where she wants. And finally, it dawns on her that, wow, this could be the Messiah. And what does that, what does that knowledge, what does that hope, what does that revelation lead to her? It leads to a resurrection of her life in that little town. She goes back to tell everybody, I've met him. He's out here at the well. This is a woman who's totally ostracized from the people of her town. You can guess why, right? Um, and the details of the story there. Um, but nevertheless, the whole town does come out to hear. Can people tell when there's something different about you? <laughs> Can you imagine the twinkle in her eye, the enthusiasm in her voice, as she goes running back to town to tell them the good news that she's met the Messiah, the Savior? How about you and I, as you and I go forth through our daily lives, as we want to share with people, we look for opportunities to share the good news or to bake those brownies, whatever it is. Um, you know, does the light of God's love shine forth through you and me? I was standing on the steps of our church in Waltham once. We were in the chapel of this big Unitarian church, gorgeous facility. They had a huge fellowship hall. And on Wednesday night, we had prayer meeting. And on Wednesday night, they had their AA meetings. Now, I'm a friend of Bill. That's another story for another time. But we all got out at the same time one night on one particular night. And I'm standing there with a young lady. I'll tell you her name in just a minute. And the crowd comes out from the AA meeting. And one guy makes a beeline for us. He, he walks right across the parking lot, comes right up to us, walks right by me, and goes to this young lady. And now I'm concerned, right? And he gets right in her face. And he goes, young lady, you've got something I want. I don't know what it is. But he could see the love just radiating from this young lady, Lucy Millette, from Moncton, New Brunswick. Some of you know that, that place. You love that area up there. Uh, I believe she's still up there. But Lucy just radiated the love of God. I trust that she still does. And this guy could spot it all the way across the parking lot. And it was attractive, right? He was attracted to it. Wow. Her candle, as it were, lit his candle. Right? Now, when you, when you have a candle that's lit and you have a candle that's unlit, what happens when you light that second candle? Does the first one lose any of its light? No. When you and I are standing outside in the sunshine and the sun is warming us as it does this spring, this glorious spring now, can any one of us soak up all the sunlight so no one else has it? Isn't that the good news about God's love? We can soak up as much as we want and there's still plenty more for everyone else, right? We just have to get them to come out into the sunlight of his love to enjoy it. All right, that's a story about Helen Keller. Let me tell you another story. This one is just for our pastor, because this one involves something called Net 99. Anybody remember back that far? I know some of you weren't even born then, but <laughs> I can remember Net 99 being a big deal. You know, out on the interweb, we're having this, this big revival going on. and. Uh, there was a woman, and this is a true story that I can give you the names. Uh, I think the guy's name was Dave Willis. But there's a young lady who has been a coal porter for years and years and years. And uh, 
sharing the, the good news with folks, but in her experience, she hadn't brought a single soul to Christ yet. Where's the fruit, right? Jesus is looking for fruit. And her heart is breaking. She's finally saying, Lord, my heart's just not in it anymore. I've been trying so hard for so long, and I just don't know what to do. This is 2005, 2006, and she's, she's ready to call it off and go do something else. When her phone rings, and it's this guy, Dave Willis. He says, hey, you remember me? No. He goes, well, <laughs> I did your taxes years ago, and as part of the payment, the exchange that took place, you gave me all these Net99 videos or DVDs. Well, don't you know, here we are five or six years later, I finally watched them. I dusted them off, took them off the shelf, and I watched them. And I just want you to know, I want to go to church with you this week. I want to become a Seventh-day Adventist. Is that a resurrection for her life? You never know when seeds are planted, right? How they're going to be watered, when they're going to ripen, who's going to get the harvest. Wow. What a blessing for her. Another soul for the kingdom through the ministry of Amazing Facts and our good pastor and all of his colleagues. You know, praise the Lord that he and his family are here now ministering to us. Um, lots of stories like that. I don't know, has anyone here adopted? You don't have to raise your hand. We, by the, the gift of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, our Heavenly Father has adopted us into his family, right? We are twice his now, by creation and by redemption. And don't, don't you know that the scriptures tell us we are co-heirs with Jesus? What does that mean? To be a co-heir with the Son of God. Wow. That puts us on vantage ground, folks. Jesus can't enter into his inheritance until we enter into it with him. And by the way, what is his inheritance? Or should I say, who is it? It's you and me. That's what he's lived and died for. And, what, and now he ever lives to intercede for you and me. I have a good friend. His name is Steve, and he's told this story in public, so I can tell it with you now. As a young boy... Steve's mother got sick and she couldn't take care of him anymore, so she, she put him up for adoption and this family fostered him, the Oben family. And for years now, Steve was a member of the family. He had brothers and sisters, a mom and dad, but he was still Steve and not Steve Oben. And then one day, years into it, and he tells a story about just look having a wonderful time being a member of that family, even though he didn't have their name. He would love answering the door and saying, Oban residents, come on in, you can meet my mom and dad, things like that. Well, one day they asked him to put on a suit because they had to go see someone very important. And don't you know, they took him down to a judge. And they, lots of spiritual illustrations here, right? And the judge wanted to ask him some questions, so he invited Steve up onto his bench in front of the whole courthouse. And he asked Steve about what it had been like to live with the Obens over the years. And he says, well, he goes, how would you like to be an Oben now? <laughs> it's all this little kid's been dreaming of for years, right? Oh my goodness, yes. You mean I get to call myself Steve Oben now? I get to be a member of this family? Uh, and so the judge made it so. And the blessings have continued there. He's married now with children, goes to church up in South Lancaster as a ministry. 
what a blessing that a family opened their home and that he could find in them his family. Has not Jesus Christ opened his home and his heart to you and me? Has he not adopted us into the beloved? Can you and I not get excited about opening the door to people to introduce them to our Heavenly Father and our big brother, Jesus? And uh, yeah, what a beautiful thing. Mm. A resurrected life for a little boy who didn't know where his life was going to go. You know, uh, a family took a chance on him. And uh, you know, I have the good news to report that my, my wife and I fostered a little boy while his mother was going through a tough time. Stayed with us for about a year. And the good news is the last time I saw him, I saw them in the village church up in South Lancaster, Mass. I got to sit with her and watch this little boy who is now taller than me. Uh, you know, praise the Lord uh, that they're there. I think I've told you the story about a school teacher who knew this young man who didn't have, uh, didn't have a lot, but there were people there who knew him and his family, and because of their generosity, he got to go to one of our, our academies. And uh, my wife noticed one day, she taught for 20 years, kindergarten, preschool, and some of the other elementary grades uh, here and there. There was a young lady that would share her lunch with him. Almost every day, her mama made enough for her to have to share with this young man. Wow. He went all through our, our, uh, our elementary and then you know, middle school and, and high school there. And then life took him somewhere else. And uh, it's a joy when my wife sees these children around and their families. Um, years go by, first day of school comes around. Moms, you, know, you probably know this better than a lot of us. What's the first day of school like for your child and for you as you have to say goodbye and turn your, ch your children over to teachers? Um, my wife noticed that there was one person in particular, one adult, lingering at the door. <laughs> There's a little girl she's taking care of. And she's, so she takes care of her and she goes, hi, can I help you? And so the young man goes, you don't remember me, do you? It was this young man. His name was Babar. And uh, he was now repaying that kindness, if you will, paying it forward, right? For the life of this young lady as well. You never know how far-reaching things are going to be, right? When you plant a seed, take a chance on someone's life. You know, I'm not saying that we should be, what's the word I'm looking for? We shouldn't put ourselves in danger, should we? But there are opportunities um, to do something like that. I think of another resurrected life. Um, her story weaves through all of the Gospels here. A young lady uh, named Mary. Um, trying to think of which scripture we should look at as we, we pick up the tale of her life. In any event, at some point in her life, she had a disastrous experience. Somebody took advantage of her, and her life descended into the hell that is... Um, that industry over in Magdala, the big resort town for the Romans 2,000 years ago. But she did have an sister, older sister and a big brother. How long do you think they prayed for her? I wonder how long some people prayed for me. Oh my goodness. You ever wonder if you get to heaven, people are going to go, I can't believe you're here. How did you make it? Probably because of all your prayers deposited in the bank of heaven, Jesus could finally make a withdrawal on my behalf. And, you know, I can tell you stories 
Um, but anyway, one day she has the good fortune to be dragged during one of the festivals. I think it's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement. She has the good fortune to be caught in the act and dragged through the streets of Jerusalem into the holiest place of all to come face to face with the Holy One of all, Jesus Christ, and thrown at his feet to made a, be made a public spectacle of. Now, normally, I don't think we'd consider that to be good news, would it? Um, well, friends, it turns out to be a turning point in her life. It can be a turning point in your life and mine, can't it? To find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And she finds out something. This is going to get to reconciliation now. She's in the presence of holiness. These guys are intent on stoning somebody today, whether it's her or Jesus. There's going to be a stoning today. And uh, they make their accusation, hoping, hoping they can trap this itinerant preacher. And uh, he bends down and starts writing in the sand. Now, we talked about God's finger writing the Ten Commandments in stone earlier. Jesus starts writing something in the dust like he doesn't hear them. Finally, they pester him long enough that, you know, Moses gave a certain command when somebody's caught doing this. He says, well, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. You pick up the story in this beautiful biography, The Desire of Ages, Jesus' statement, he that's without sin, cast the first stone, came to her as a death sentence. She closed her eyes, put her hands over her head, and waited for the stones to fall. And then she heard the stones start dropping. They weren't being thrown at her. These accusers were coming up, seeing what Jesus was writing in the dust. I wonder if it was the Ten Commandments and their sins spelled out for them in the dust. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they all leave. And finally, it's just her and Jesus. How about you and I, folks? If anybody's been accusing you and me, um, whatever it is that's traumatizing us, can we not find hope and healing, forgiveness, cleansing? at the feet of Jesus. She finally has the courage to look up, and Jesus says, has no man condemned you? Well, neither do I. How is it possible for Jesus not to condemn her? Had she not broken the law? Had she not been caught with multiple witnesses in the midst of breaking the law? So how can Jesus forgive her? How can he not condemn her? How can he not do that to you and me? Are you and I not guilty of something or another? He can do it because he was going to give his life for hers. He gave his life for yours and mine. And that's something. When, when God gives up his life on the cross, what does he do with that life? Does it just go out into the vapor? He gives it to you and me. He doesn't just offer it and says, here's my life. If you're obedient, you can have it. A lot of people try. Not many people do. But. Or, because he became a human being and entered our cage, a member of our fallen family, and if you ever wonder what nature Jesus Christ adopted when he was born, Adam and Eve's before the fall, or Adam and Eve's after the fall? Let me ask you a question. 
which nature needed redeeming? If he only assumed Adam and Eve's nature before the fall, how could he be your savior and mine? Because you and I possess the nature, a fallen nature, that needs redeeming. She spells it out here in the Desire of Ages in the chapter of the baptism. Notwithstanding that the sins of the guilty world were to be laid upon him, notwithstanding the humiliation of, wait for it, taking upon himself our fallen nature, the voice from heaven declared him to be the son of the eternal. Wow. When you and I and our children get baptized, does that embrace them as well? Are we not children of the eternal? Twice his by creation and now by redemption. And by saying yes. God does so many wonderful things for humanity as a whole. It does remain for us, you and me, to do something Respond personally. Um, but salvation does so much for us regardless of what we choose. That second chance extends to everyone. You know my favorite word in John 3.16, I've shared this with you before, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have, have, possess everlasting life. Whenever you and I want to try to limit God's love? He has that one word in John 3, 16, whosoever, whosoever believes. He's savior of the world. He's not just savior of the believers. I'm not saying that everyone's gonna be saved, but some people choose to throw away their salvation. He's savior, an infinite sacrifice for a finite number of people that will commit a finite number of sins. Is God the God of less than enough? Just enough or more than enough? So let's go to Romans 5 and pick it up. Here we're going to talk about reconciliation and see if I can get you with my trick question earlier about which way reconciliation works. This is such a wonderful chapter. Let's just enjoy it and we'll see how far we get. Therefore, being justified by faith, being, it's a reality. We have, does he offer us peace or do we possess peace? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith, there's the choice, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Oh, we can stand in hope, friends. How about that? And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience. Okay, I'm learning to like that. <laughs> and patience, experience, and experience hope, and hope makes us not ashamed, because why? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is offered? Nope, that word there is given, is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, or dead, in sin, in due time Christ died for who? If you and I are the ungodly, is there good news for you and me? Praise the Lord. Wow. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But what did God do? He commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, no, that says us. 
Much more. This chapter is full of much mores. Our God is the God of much more. Then being now, when? Now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Wow. He ever lives to intercede for us in heaven now. There's a human being in the presence of God in the sanctuary of heaven, our high priest, who is acquainted with our griefs, uh, interceding on our behalf. Now, which way does reconciliation work? Here's the little theological point I want to make today, because it's a big one. A big doors can swing on small hinges. I always thought reconciliation worked this way. God was going to be reconciled to me. Not me reconciled to God. Well, the scriptures here and, in, and elsewhere, Romans 5 and elsewhere, tell us it's all one way. It's you and me that need to be reconciled to God because we have enmity in our hearts toward God by virtue of us being sinners. God is not reconciled to you and me. Do you know where that idea came from, friends? Paganism. That's where the child sacrifices came in, from these angry gods whose justice had been broken and who had been offended now, and in their anger they needed to be appeased. And maybe if you offer just the right sacrifice or just the right amount of sacrifice, you could appease this angry God. So Christ's sacrifice, it satisfies God's justice, right? He's a just God and a merciful God. Jesus Christ's sacrifice, he pays the price with his life and his shed blood to meet the demands of justice. Is that justice demanded because of enmity or because of love? Is God's justice a product of his enmity toward us or his love toward us? His justice is met because of love toward us. It finds its answer. It finds its acquittal because of love. He can be just in acquitting all of us. He gives us his justification. He can treat us just as if we had never sinned because Jesus has paid the entire price. And when he gives up his life and gives that life to you and me, guess what that life brings with it? Forgiveness and cleansing. He, he gave himself for us. It brings the forgiveness and cleansing with it for all of humanity. It belongs to you and me now. Satan can do nothing about it. He's powerless to stop it unless you and I choose to say no to this unspeakable gift. If we say thank you but no thank you, Jesus will eventually say, okay, you can have your choice. But for now, I'm the God of second, third, fourth, and fifth choices, can you say amen? So a couple more much more is here in Romans chapter 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all, for all have sinned. And it talks about how death reigned from Adam to Moses. Verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free offer. No, the free gift. It's a free gift. Free to you and me, okay? 
For if through the offense of one, many, in the Greek, all be dead, there it is, much more the grace of God and the gift, not offer, by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to everyone, in the Greek. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to the condemnation, but the free offer? No, gift is of many offenses unto justification, or again, God can now treat us just as if we had never sinned. Wow. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, there it is much more, they which receive the abundance of grace, that Greek is superabounding grace, right? Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And of the gift of righteousness, right doing, friends. Jesus gives us his life. It, it is a life of right doing. Wow. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Came upon how many? Just the believers? Came upon all mankind unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience all were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall all be made righteous. Really? Is that what God is saying here? From your perspective or mine or from God's perspective, does God look at you and me through the lens of Jesus Christ? He now stands as the representative of our race in the presence of the Father interceding for you and me. And when, Jesus, when God the Father sees you and me, he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ as a representative of our race. And we are righteous. In Christ, we are righteous here and now. That right, don't let the devil discourage you. Don't let him blind you any longer. Let's let the light of God's love break through the darkness here. The devil's a defeated foe. Can you say amen? God is the victor. The war is won. Skirmishes remain to be fought in your life and mine, but the outcome is determined, right? Hallelujah. Many will be made righteous. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto what? Eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's close with this thought. Can eternal life begin here and now for you and me, for anyone else we choose to share it with? If we are sharing Jesus Christ with other people, if we are sharing his life, our own personal experience with him, if we invite God's presence to go with us, just imagine what that means. You know, when Jesus entered the death chamber of Jairus for his little girl, did the devil stand any chance of keeping that little girl dead? Absolutely not. When Jesus bid, here we go back to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. When Jesus bid Lazarus to come forth from the tomb, could anything prevent it? When he voluntarily took up his life again, could all the devils in the universe keep him in the tomb? So when you and I, friends, are feeling like we're dead, we've done it again, we've fallen, we've sinned, we've made that same mistake for the umpteenth time, don't let the devil discourage you. Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. It is his joy to pluck us as brands out of the fire, is it not? Um, and praise the Lord. It's nice to see people coming out of the fire like Daniel's three friends, bringing those buckets of water. Water, the water of life, that fountain of life to help quench the flames in other people's lives, right? Let all God's children say, amen.